Welcome back to QAV. If this is your first time uh, listening to QAV, this is an investment podcast. Usually it involves me talking to my friend and investing mentor, Tony Kynaston, and he explains his personal methodology that we call QAV for how to pick good stock investments. But uh, today we've got a guest on, uh, very excited about this chat. We did this a couple of days ago, um, uh, I think 19th of August, with Michael Goldberg. Michael is one of the principals of the Collins Street Value Fund. Uh, They're value investors with with a twist, I guess, when opportunities come along, as Michael will explain. But um, as you may know, if you've been listening to our show recently, we we talked about these guys a few weeks ago. They uh, performed very well in the recent financial year. I think they placed third in the Mercer Survey of Investment Manager Performance. Um, So, and they've been performing very well for the last four or five years, as you'll hear Michael report on the show, uh, outperforming the index very well. Uh, They've got a very concentrated portfolio strategy. Anyway, terrific chat we had, quite lengthy, so uh, enjoy. This is Michael Goldberg from Collins Street Value Fund. So um, I grew up in, in Melbourne, um, you know, to a, to, to a family that was always quite entrepreneurial. I mean, my grandparents came from, via the Middle East, from Europe, with nothing but the basically the shirts on their back. And an exceptional work ethic and they passed that on to, to my father and, and to my father's family and they also um, encouraged their kids to, to take risks and and you know be entrepreneurial so my father has always been in business he's always been an entrepreneur and, and that rubbed off on me I think to, to some extent over the years and you know I was doing entrepreneurial things before I even knew what the word entrepreneurial really meant but you know my dad built up a, a, a um, a network of about 14 stores pre the 1990 recession. Um, and there was lots of good learning experiences that, that I picked up over that period. I think one of the ones that most clearly translates across to, to investing and being a fund manager is that you discover when you run a business that not everybody is as equally informed as everybody else. So you can paint a picture for sure if you speak to the, the managers, the store managers, to the suppliers or, or the salespeople, but no one's ever going to know quite as much as the boss. And that always sort of sat in the back of my mind. And I've got a sense that, yeah, there are businesses and people can understand the businesses, but there are some people who understand them better than other people. Um, in terms of stocks, I was first introduced to stocks in about 1990, 91, when my auntie bought me $100 worth of CSR and from then on, mum was only allowed to buy that sugar when she went shopping. Um, I later got introduced to a stockbroker at JB Weir by one of my other aunties. Um, and this was before the days of discount broking and online broking. So when you called up the broker, you got 20 minutes chatting with an expert in, in the field. Um, and then you walked away with you know making a purchase or making a sale, whatever the case may be, um, and paying a fee for, 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 the, uh, for, for that benefit. And the first stock I ever bought, again, I think it was about 1991, um, was National Australia Bank. And I remember walking away thinking, gosh, that was a really good conversation. I wonder if everybody else knows what this broker just told me, because it seems to me like if everything he said is true, 
then this stock is really cheap. Now, again, I didn't quite know what to do with it at that point, um, but the seed was sort of planted and, and, and the, concept, the concept of being able to get an information advantage um, was additionally solidified in my mind. Again, didn't know what to do with it. Um, you know, I, I, I wasted a lot of time, or spent a lot of time over the next few years before I got professional looking for shortcuts to identify winners. And I think finding shortcuts is wonderful. Shortcuts are great tools. But I think I was looking in all the wrong places. I started by following chat groups. I, I started by, um, by trying to understand momentum investing, a bit of charting, you know, following good managers. And even when I eventually made it to, to university, it seemed like the process of valuing stocks um, was taught more theoretically rather than practically. There always seemed to be some sort of disconnect between the underlying company and, and what the share price was. And I don't think it was really until I got um, a job at Leyland Private Asset Management, which at the time was a small boutique um, wealth management firm based out of um, Turak Village, that the pieces of the puzzle sort of started to come to focus. And I, I don't know necessarily that, that they added any pieces for me. I think the issue was that I had the whole puzzle in front of me, but the pieces were all until then turned upside down. And it wasn't until someone said, hey, this is what you've been looking for and introduced me to Warren Buffett and value investing in earnest that all of a sudden a light was switched on and I realized, okay, <laughs> this makes a lot of sense. So, um, you know, Ben Graham type investing was I think the thing that resonated with me most to start off with. You know, the, the concept that, you know, if you can buy a stock or, or a business at less than the fire sale value of its assets, that you're probably going to do okay. Um, I think though that the longer I've invested, the more I've drifted towards the sort of Phil Fisher approach or the Peter Lynch approach, um, you know, taking the concept of scuttlebutt and making it our own, you know, looking beyond the, the wind-up value of a business and, and trying to ascribe value to an actual underlying business, not just, not, not just their assets, I think has been a big step. And of course, I mean, I, I presume you've heard some of the stories that we've told in the past, but Scalbutt now plays a, a key role in, in, in a large, large number of the stocks that we've bought. But again, it's evolved over time, you know, like I said, first purchase in 1990. Um, our, my view and Vass's view were, were more solidified during our time at Leyland. Um, but I suppose like pretty much anyone else and especially most value investors, we're just trying to look to buy a dollar for 50 cents. <laughs> so, um, yeah, look, I'll, I'll grant you that my background isn't necessarily your traditional fund manager background. I didn't go straight from high school, straight to uni, straight to one of the big brokers and then, you know, piggyback off, off, um, of other people and, and, you know, really assess things from, from, a, from a theoretical or a quantitative position. You know, my background includes things like running, you know, practical business experience, you know, having, having, having a significant amount of years of, of, of time in seminary studying in the Middle East, you know, I've built a family, you know, I've, I've had jobs from, from house cleaner to, to, to working at the Queen Vec market to, to being a financial advisor. So I think all of those different parts of my life have all framed my approach and view on the world and certainly has had an impact on, on the way we're investing. So yes, yeah, certainly, you know, Vass and I would both say, and Vass has a similar background to me in terms of having practical business experience. We, we, we'd both agree that, that we are, or we'd all agree that we're, I think, value, value investors. Um, but I think the advantage that, that we have is that we've received a fabulous mandate from our early investors, and that's the mandate we stick with. Um, but also, I think having run businesses in, and, and having been involved in actual businesses, I think perhaps we have a little bit of better insight into the businesses that we're investing through the stock market. And I think there's always a risk that if you're just looking at it from a very high, from a high level, 
just very qualitative, often cases you can miss out on opportunities or, or get things wrong. And I think, I think having had that practical experience has been a big benefit to us over the years. Did you say seminary studies in the Middle East? <laughs> yes, I did. Yes, I did. I, you uh, skipped over that. You skipped over that really quickly. Let, talk, let's talk more about that. Who, who, cares, who cares about my time in seminary in Jerusalem? <laughs> I do. That sounds fascinating. <laughs> Look, it was, it was actually an amazing experience. And um, it, did set my, it did set me up for, for my life going forward. Essentially, what happened was, you know, I'm, I'm an Orthodox Jew. Um, I come from, a, from an Orthodox family. But practicing Judaism in Victoria and practicing Judaism in the home of where it all started in, in Israel are somewhat different experiences. They don't need to be, but it tends to be. So after year 12, I decided to go back to my roots for 12 months and learn a bit about my history and you know the ethics of Judaism and some of the ancient texts and whatnot. And I thought, you know what, take off 12 months. It's a gap year. It's pretty standard to do that. And so I went off to seminary and my gap year became three gap years before I eventually came back to do university here at Monash. And then after Monash, I decided to pop back over there again for a refresher and uh, ended up meeting my wife and started to set roots um, in Jerusalem before we eventually moved back to, to Melbourne. Wow, fascinating. Yes, <laughs> yes. Look, it's, it's just school. <laughs> it was lots of studying, lots of, lots of looking <laughs> at books, lots of, lots of quiet time, lots of uh, meditation. It, it, it was... It was a, it was a, it was a really amazing experience, and um, whether you whether you take a gap year uh, to a seminary or whether you take a gap year just traveling around the world, I think I think there are tremendous lessons to be learned for eighteen or nineteen year olds just in having some independence and being forced to look after themselves. You know, with that kind of background, I would expect you to turn into a, a growth stock investor because that's all built around faith <laughs> rather than science and evidence value investors are more you know show me the data i don't, don't want to as we well, always say i don't want to get too theological for you but uh judaism is less about faith and more about belief so we like to have our facts in front of us oh okay <laughs> well that's sounds like a deep topic for maybe another podcast Perhaps. you said your dad was an entrepreneur what did what did he do oh look i mean you know he he, he started off as the television technician he used to repair televisions you know when they used to have the tubes in them early color tvs um and then he ended up going into retail he started off with um he started off by working on the queen victoria market and then he started opening up his own stores and at one point during the late 80s he and his uh his sister had opened up about 14 15 stores um you know tragically called trendy girl uh, a very 1980s <laughs> type of name um, and, you know, sad, sadly, sadly for, for, for him and the family, don't want to make it sound too tragic, but uh, the, the recession cleaned them up um, to a great extent. They, they shut down a lot of shops, which is probably not surprising in, the, in an environment where interest rates were 20% plus and he was going through a, a growth phase for, for his business. Talking so, about the 91, the Keating yeah, recession, yeah, the recession that we had to have. That's it, the one that we had to have. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so we had a lot of exposure to, to like running a business. Dad used to cart us around on Sundays when it wasn't soccer season. You know, we used to deliver stock. We used to go to the factories. Later on, we used to work at the Queen Vic Market selling, you know, Australiana T-shirts for six bucks to massive, massive crowds. <laughs> Things have changed quite a lot in retail and at the Queen Vic Market since then. Um, but, you know, we learned some good rules. You know, we, sorry, we learned some good lessons. You know, we, we learned about customer service. We learned about, you know, you know, trying a little bit harder or thinking a little bit deeper and getting big advantages out of doing something just slightly different to everybody else. Um, there were some good lessons to be learned in basic businesses that, that can be applied to all sorts of complex 
Uh, how did you end up starting the fund, Michael? For sure. So, so as I mentioned, I started the fund with uh, my business partner and colleague, Vass. We were both at Leyland Private Asset Management where we managed IMAs. Now, IMAs are a little bit different to, to what we're doing right now. Essentially, an IMA means an individually managed account. And each client that we had had a tailor-made mandate to suit whatever they were trying to achieve. And it's, it's a wonderful product. You know, it, it's a wonderful product for a lot of people. Having direct ownership of shares makes a tremendous amount of sense. Um, but, you know, Vass, Vass sat across from me on a, on a big open, open, open office plan sort of system. And so I'm looking at this guy for more hours in the day than I'm seeing my wife. And, you know, every time you build a relationship and would occasionally go down for lunch. And as you do, you crack out the... Uh, you know, the serviette and write down your life's plan. And, you know, we both sort of got to the same point at the same sort of time where we felt like perhaps we've hit a ceiling in terms of growing our business. And so we thought, you know, it makes some sense to streamline the process. Now, obviously each client has their own mandate, but amongst my clients, 80 or 90% had mandates that were so similar that they were almost indistinguishable. And for Vass, he found similarly. So we went to our boss at the time, Charles, and said, you know, would Leyland considering would Leyland consider um, launching a fund or, or something along those lines? And he hummed and hard, and he wasn't really keen on it because he'd built his he'd built his reputation on these IMAs. And so eventually, after it was clear that it wasn't going to happen there, Bass and I decided that we'd go and do it ourselves. I think it was towards the end of 2014, middle 2015, we started the process of speaking with ASIC and getting our licensing and whatnot. And um, eventually, come the beginning of 2016, we opened the fund up to the public and our first money came in, in January. So it, the fund's mandate is born out of a lot of the feedback we had from our old clients and the people around us. Um, and I think probably the two most unique things that you'll find about our fund is number one, that we're very concentrated. Um, our view, and I think it, it came through in the AF article that I heard you guys talking about the other day. Um, we don't understand why people would invest in their 20th best idea when we feel that it is much lower risk um, investing in your favorite ideas. So that was number one, we got a mandate to invest in our favorite ideas. And number two was around the fee structure. You know, we were looking for a way to align our interests with our clients. And whenever we're looking at a management team, we're always looking to make sure that their interests are aligned with ours. So we're always looking to make sure that their interests are aligned with ours. So it makes sense that our clients should expect the same things for us. So when we launched the fund, we decided to go with a zero fixed management fee with the only fee being a performance fee. That obviously has wow. some inherent risks. Um, but like I said, we had a bit of a track record. We've been running money for 10 years at that point, 10 years plus at that point, And we were fairly confident that we could generate positive returns, almost irrespective of markets. Uh, certainly over the medium term. And so we were prepared to back ourselves. And, you know, when people ask me, you know, what was the basis for, for taking, taking that sort of view to fees? You know, I, I hark back to the story of um, one of my old clients I visited pretty much during the depths of GFC. I think the markets were down 20 or 25% or thereabouts. And I turned up all excited that our portfolio had done exceptionally well. I think we were down about 5%. So we're talking about 15 to 20% our performance. So, for, for, for a professional investor, um, you know, you feel pretty good going in saying, hey, we beat the market by 15%. But of course, when I got in front of the, uh, the client, he seemed less impressed than I expected. 
And he said, Michael, look, I appreciate that you're not down 20% like the market is, but I can't eat relative returns. He said, I'm happy to pay you a fee when you do well and when I'm making money. But if I'm losing money, I feel like it doesn't quite sit well with me that I'm, I'm paying you a fee just to look after my money. And it resonated and, and you know, we sat on that and we thought about it for a while. And when we eventually looked to launch the fund, we said, you know what, he's 100% right. You know, there's, there's no other industry out there where you could theoretically fundamentally fail in your mandate and still get paid 100% of your fees. Um, whereas in financial planning and, and, and broking and funds management, whether you win or lose, most funds will get their 1% or 2% fee um, no matter what. So, except, except politics. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think anyone has any expectations around politics. So that, that's okay. <laughs> My colleague Vass said lawyers, yeah. but I don't think that's entirely true. <laughs> well, they lose, yeah. Interesting, interesting. So um, tell me about what sort of client would invest in your fund. Yeah, I think we probably have a couple of different types of... Look, we're a wholesale fund, so so all of our clients seem to be sophisticated. You know, most of our client base would be high net worth people, high net wealth people. So we're talking about doctors and lawyers and candlestick makers, professionals, sometimes even quite young professionals who just don't have the time to manage their own portfolio. And I think even Tony, you'd agree that you've got to find some time to A, learn up the industry and learn up what you're doing and then B, to manage your portfolio. Even if it is only an hour a day, I think you mentioned that you spend only a couple of hours a week and that's great, but it's mm -hmm. taken you a tremendous amount of time to get to this point. Um, I don't think most people have, or certainly not professionals, have that amount of time, certainly when they're, when, they're, when they're growing and getting started. We also have a lot of established business people who are maybe looking after family money, who are looking for some handholding in, in, in managing their money. And of course, the largest part of our portfolio would be self-managed super funds. I think probably about 50, 60% of our, our um, clients are self-managed super funds. You know, we've also got a couple of family offices in there, and we also have a couple of charitable trusts in there. So... If you qualify sophisticated, you'd qualify to be an investor with us, subject to um, buying into our philosophy and process. You know, there's been a lot of talk recently about how well we've done, and, and we have done very well. But anytime I meet with a potential client, the first thing I say is, look, I'm thrilled firstly that you're happy to see me, and I'm thrilled that you're keen to invest in us. But don't be investing in us just because we've done well the last four years. You know, I, I want you to, number one, invest in us because you buy into our philosophy and our people. And then secondarily, because you think we're going to keep doing what we've been doing. But if, if, if performance is all you're backing, then, you know, everyone's going to have good months and bad months. Everyone's going to have good years and bad years. Um, you know, there, there's no promises and there, there can't be any expectations other than we're going to keep doing um, what we've been doing and hopefully the results will come through again. Mm. So just, just for our listeners, what, what kind of returns has the fund been getting? Um, since launch, which was almost five years ago, we're running at about 16% growth. Uh, gross. Mm -hmm. um, look, our, our target, we've always said, when we've met people face-to-face, -face, and I'm a bit hesitant saying this on a recorded podcast, but we've, we've often said we're, we're looking to get about 15%. We think we can do about 15 20% over the long-term gross before fees. Um, and, and thus far, we've been hanging around about the 15% mark pretty much since we started. Mm -hmm. And you said before the fund is, is concentrated. How many positions are in the fund? Um, so it's a bit complicated. It's a bit more complicated now than it normally is. I would say that we've got about eight to 10 positions, but we have a few more stocks than that. And what I mean by that is ordinarily um, we're bottom up um, investors. We look for great companies and then we don't especially care what industry or what sector they're in. We just look for great companies that are trading cheaply. Um, but we have taken a view on a couple of themes at the moment 
And rather than just trying to pick one or two stocks in that theme, we built a basket of stocks to, to give us coverage to, to, to those ideas. So one is uranium. Um, we identified in about 2018 that uranium was exceptionally cheap based on the cost of production and the upcoming demand and supply constraints. Um, so rather than trying to pick the best uranium stock, not being experts in geology or, or, or uranium, what we did instead was we collated all of the uranium companies on this Australian stock market. We arranged them by balance sheet strength. And on that basis, we created essentially our own ETF. Um, it's been refined since then. We've now paid far more attention to quality of management and, uh, and ability to go into production quickly and cost of production, all that sort of stuff now plays a bigger role. And so that ETF now looks a bit different to what it did in the beginning. Um, but you know that, that group of uranium stocks is about eight companies. So that obviously means we've got more stocks than we have than what we have positions. But again, I look at that basket of uranium stocks as a single position. And we did a similar thing as well around gold. Okay, so so you're long only. Are there any other assets in the portfolio besides shares? No, we're long only. We've got cash. We have an open mandate. We can hold as much cash as we want. Um, our view has always been if there are good ideas, we'll buy them. If there's not, then we're happy to hold cash. And that meant that as we approached um, the beginning of 2020 and the market's looking quite expensive before the corona crash, we actually had built up a cash reserve about 30, 35%. Again, we weren't geniuses. We, we didn't pick that coronavirus was coming around the corner, although I have a story on that if you'd like afterwards. <laughs> but um, you know, at the, point, at the point that we weren't finding any cheap stocks or good businesses at, at, at prices that we thought were attractive, so we were happy to hold cash. And that meant that when the crash did come, we had a lot of capital and, and dry powder to put to work. So since the crash, we've, we've, we've invested you know, about two thirds of that 35% cash. We're now standing at about 12-ish percent cash, which is a comfortable position for us. But um, the markets are still quite complicated and still quite a bit scary. But um, you know, some opportunities cropped up during February, March and April that we just thought were too good to, to let go by. And, and why, uh, why the focus on uranium? How did you come about to, to pick that area to invest in? Well, the, the story actually goes like this. You know, we often get calls from, from stockbrokers or, or emails from stockbrokers. And that's, I suppose, just a part of life being a, a fund manager or, or an investor of any sort. And um, my colleague Vass was on the phone with the stockbroker. I think it might have been Bell Potter, I think. And he was spruiking whatever the latest, most exciting stock was at the time. This was back in 2018. And I could see Vass's eyes were glazing over and he was getting a bit frustrated because we're not interested in what's already run. We want to know, you know, what's mm. unpopular and, and what's got a lot of, you know, a lot of upside potential. Well, you know, we're looking for asymmetrical returns. We're looking for stuff that, that has a lot of upside and very little downside. And Vass was, like I said, he rolled his eyes at me and I said, Vass, I wrote a note. I said, Vass, ask him what stock he likes, but is embarrassed to take to his customers. So he asked the question, okay, look, I'm not interested in this tech stock that you're talking about or whatever the case was. He said, but tell me something about an idea that you like, but you're uncomfortable taking it to your uh, clients because you know they'll knock you down or it's, it's not popular or whatever the case may be. And the guy says, have you had a look at uranium? And we said, no, we don't tend to look at commodities because you know commoditized businesses tend to only be able to compete on price and that's not a great business model, but show us what you've got. So he sent us some link to some videos and some articles and some of his own research. And we sat there thinking, oh my goodness, like this 
this this theme, this thematic has been in a massive decline since the Fukushima earthquakes and 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 the uh, issues that we had with the um, power plants in Japan. The global cost of producing a pound of uranium is about $45 per pound. And currently the spot price is about $18 per pound. And this was after the two biggest producers of uranium decided to cut production by about 20%. So if, if you saw, if you saw um, oil production going down 20%, you would expect to see the price of oil just absolutely skyrocketing, but nothing happened. Nothing happened with uranium. So we did more research and we decided, you know what, this seems a go, you know, you've seen it with oil in the past. You've seen it with, with, uh, with coal in the past. It's, it's not, it's not often that you have commodities trading at a material discount to the cost of production. And when you do, it doesn't normally last very long. So we made the call and we bought the basket and we actually picked the almost absolute bottom of the uranium market. You know, 18 bucks is about as low as it got. And it's currently sitting at about 32, $33 per pound. Sadly for us, um, we didn't own uranium. We bought uranium companies and they have not performed quite as well. Quite the contrary. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Vass and I were having a conversation the other day and he said, you know, the last time spot prices were where they're currently at, uranium companies were three or four times higher in terms of market cap than where they currently are. So look, I think there's a bit of a disconnect. I think there's a lot of politics in the background. I think there's a lot of regulatory uncertainty and all sorts of confusion around the industry in general. Um, that's seen it not recover faster than or as fast as you'd expect it to, to, to recover. But I think that's the way this industry is. It, it's, it's slow moving. And when it does rally, we think it will rally very, very hard. So we're very, very confident in, uh, in the positions we've got. A lot of those uranium companies, even though they've all turned off production for the moment, once they turn them back on, you know, payback period for, for, for the entire market cap is, you know, two, three years. So it's, incre it's incredibly cheap. I, I know you can't quite call that a price to earnings ratio, but once things go to, to some semblance of normality and you get, the, um, you get the utilities in America starting to buy again in earnest, I think you'll see a, a rapid turnaround um, in the fortunes of the listed companies. So, that, so some of the stocks would be what, Palladium? On the Australian stock exchange, uh, Paladin, yeah, Paladin is Paladin, is the sorry. biggest one. I think probably the best known ones in in Australia would probably be Paladin and Boss. Um, you've also got Peninsula, which has its operations out of out of the states, and you've got Vimy, um, which has its operations in Australia as well. What else? Um, Lotus also bought one of the well, Lotus bought a major project off Paladin and now run it as an independent project. There, there aren't a lot and there aren't a lot that are going to be in production soon. And, and, and so part of the challenge is making sure that, you know, you own a, a broad basket of them, but that you own the right ones. So is there a, that's, I mean, that's kind of a thematic approach to investing. Is there a timing risk with that? Which you could be right for a long time before you actually make any money. Yeah. 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 Look, I mean, I've, I've heard the saying that, you know, if, if you're, if you're right on, on, on a, uh, on an idea, but wrong on timing, it's as good as being wrong. And I, I've mm. certainly seen that, play out in my experience many, many times. Um, you know, one good example is several years ago now, um, I made a big, when I was still at Leyland, I made a, a big transfer from owning stock in Telstra, which had rallied to about $5.50 at the time, into a New Zealand company called Chorus, which is basically mm -hmm. a wholesale telecom company based out of New Zealand. So think about Telstra's pits and trenches and access to the lines. That's essentially what Chorus did. So Chorus was trading on three, four times earnings because of, of some regulatory uncertainty. And Telstra, I think, at the time was trading at about 12 times. And I said, 
you know what, let's move out of Telstra at 550. Let's move into Chorus. And I think it was, I started about $1.80. I think this makes sense. And my view was that I thought Chorus, once the dust had settled on the regular transcendent that, that they were facing, would be worth about $4. And that Telstra was probably about right. So I looked like an absolute dill. I thought it would take six months to play out. It took four years to play out. But, you know, right after I sold my Telstras, they promptly went up to 657 bucks and, and Chorus promptly fell to about a, a low of twenty. But you fast forward, you fast forward the four years that it took for Chorus to get, uh, to, to get the outcome they're waiting for. And they were a $4 stock. Um, you know, today I think they're $7 and change while Telstra mm. is, is $3 and change. So there's been a change of fortunes there. Um, you're right. I was massively wrong on the timing. I thought it would take six months and it ended up taking um, four, four years. But at the end of the day, if there's enough margin of safety in, in terms of um, your potential return versus the downside risk, you know, if, if someone said, are you prepared to pay $1.80 for something today that in four years will be worth $4? I'd probably say yes. I mean, I'd rather be worth $4 in six months for sure. But, but if the intrinsic value is there, I think eventually the market recognizes these things. Eventually. Mm-hmm. Mm. But you're right, Tony. Well, but between mispricing and intrinsic value, there's, there are 5 million Australian investors who are making decisions on a day-to-day basis based on how they got out of bed. And it can be a, a, a long and sometimes painful journey to, to get from where you are to where you think you should be. Mm, yeah. And, and so that's commodities. What about some of the other stocks that you hold? What, what would be another example of a value investing uh, pick in your portfolio? Um, I mean, recently I've spoken a couple of, about a couple of what I would call deeper value uh, stocks, sort of stocks that are trading at discounts to their NTA. One was National Tire and Wheel. And I've had some news recently that, that sort of changes the story a little bit. But, you know, during the worst of uh, the COVID crash, they got down to about 20, 22 cents. Their NTA is around about 50 cents per share. Um, this is a business that, that primarily sells um, wheels and tires. And I think the market were panicking that the business was basically going to be broken by COVID-19. Certainly when I spoke to people that, or, you know, people in the industry, not in the tire industry, but in the, in the investing industry, they were concerned that sales were going to be down 60 or 80%. So, you know, I, um, it's a bit of a funny story, but my, uh, my, my daughter had a project on the, on the impact of COVID-19 on local businesses. And being that I apparently am the house expert on economics and math. So she came to me to say, you know, dad, can you help me out with this, with this project? I said, look, I've actually got some research I've got to do myself on the impact of COVID-19. Why don't we do this together? So uh, we, we, we pulled up the, uh, the equivalent of the yellow pages. We, just, we, go- we Googled some, some local tire and wheel companies, some in Victoria, some in, uh, some in New South Wales, some in Queensland. And we called around to, to eight different companies and we asked them, you know, how's it been? What's the impact of COVID-19 been? And across the board, they all said, oh, this has been the most terrible time that we've experienced in my entire career, be it 5, 10, 20, 30 years, whatever the case was. They all said how awful it was. And then we asked, yeah, but how, as a proportion of sales, how, how, how down are your sales during the COVID period? And they all said around about 30, 20, 40%. The average was around about 30%. So we went away and we said, you know what? The market thinks that this is absolutely, this is about to get absolutely tailed up. The market thinks that National Tire and Wheel are going to come out with their announcement um, and say that sales are down 80%. That's not, that's, that's not what we're seeing um, by doing our scuttlebutt. So we'd already owned some from before the COVID crash and we materially averaged down um, when that opportunity arose. I think we, we paid about 27, 28 cents for, for a big line of stock. And about two weeks later, management from National Tire and Wheel came out and said, look, it's been a tough time. 
Um, sales were down about 30%, but we're starting to see a, a strong recovery, especially um, in rural areas. Apparently, there's been some, you know, a material increase in sales for uh, for tyres for for RVs and, and and caravans and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, we bought it originally because we thought it would be countercyclical. Um, people tend to buy tyres instead of buying new cars, and and since 2017, you've seen new car sales going down significantly. Um, you know, at first, when the idea was brought to me as being countercyclical, I didn't fully buy into it, but eventually, after doing the research, it resonated and it made some sense. Um, and we were buying it originally at, at less than their NTA. And when we bought it during the COVID crash, near the bottom of the COVID crash, we were buying it at almost half the, the NTA. So, you know, I suppose that's probably a, a more of a traditional Ben Graham type mm. value, value investing approach, where if they wound up the business the day after we bought it, we would have made a profit and that's great. Your, mm. your downside is protected. Even if the share price can go down, at least you know that you're not gonna you know, lose your capital. Um, the business is actually quite good though. So the business is doing quite well. They recently made a purchase um, during the depths, again, of the COVID dramas. So they, they, they bought quite well. Um, but again, if you ascribe zero value to the ongoing business, we were buying it at a 30% discount to its fire sale value. So we were quite comfortable there. Similarly, I think with iSelect, I also mentioned iSelect recently in, mm-hmm. in some media. Um, you know, they've got a trailing commission book, which is basically commissions on, on selling health insurance or, or life insurance or, or whatever the case may be. But they value at about 54 cents per share. Um, they were recently trading as low as 20 cents. I think they're about 25, 26 cents at the moment. And if you account for their liabilities and you account for the costs of winding up the business, if you ascribe zero value to their ongoing business, which I don't, I think it's you know, maybe not the greatest business in the world, but certainly a decent business. Um, we think it's worth 40, 45 cents. Um, and that was solidified last week when um, the major competitor of Compare the Market, who is also their major shareholder, came out and made a cheeky bit of 40 cents, which eventually fell over because of different issues. But, um, you know, again, my thinking is if you can buy these companies at a discount to their wind-up value, then the upside from the business is all just a bonus. So, you know, there's a few businesses like that in there that... Um, that, that those sorts of those sorts of um, companies represent, and then you've got some companies that that have massive upside potential relative to you know reasonably low downside potential um, that perhaps aren't trading at a discount to their fire sale value, but are trading very very cheaply on their potential. Um, things like Paradigm, which is possibly a little bit more growth orientated. Things like Victory Offices. Um, we even made some good money on TPG when um, when the ACCC originally knocked back. The merger with Vodafone. Um, we've had some experience over time dealing with, with those sorts of those sorts of situations where the market panics when a regulator says, you know, this is our initial thought, but nine times out of ten, their initial thoughts and, and the final outcome are quite different. So once we got comfortable, we make you know we're happy to invest in those sorts of things as well. Yeah, okay. So you're basically taking positions based on the fact you think the market's got the pricing wrong on the company. That is exactly correct, Tony. So, and can you tell me an example of where that may have not worked out for you? Look, I think we've, we've invested a couple of times in a company called Cash Converters and we, uh, <laughs> they've faced many dramas o- o- over their journey. Um, but one drama that we thought was being overblown was the risk of regulatory intervention in their business. Um, there was a lot of dislike for the payday lenders a few years back. and we thought that it was overblown. It turns out it wasn't overblown. So we did a bit of our dough over there. Um, 
look, I think fundamentally it's a, it's a decent business, but we overpaid based on, based on some assumptions that turned out to be misplaced. Um, you know, we made it back later on when, when, when cash converters was, was, was due to go to court to, to deal with a class action. And again, we thought the market were, were um, overestimating the impact of, of that class action. And we were able to buy some stock at 13 cents um, and it, promptly rallied up to 22 cents after the class action was completed. So look, you, you, you certainly get some wrong. Um, the goal is always to get more right than you get wrong. And the trick I think to that is just becoming as fully informed as you possibly can. Now, obviously it's impossible to know absolutely everything about everything. And so, you know, we will get it wrong from time to time, but I figure the, the more we know, the more tools we have, um, it, the more tools we have available to us to, to make the right sorts of decisions. So, so you, you talked before about Scuttlebutt and you talked before about understanding the position. So what, what kind of process do you go through to uncover a stock like iSelect or cash converters? Yeah, look, I mean, it, it's a different story for, for every sort of stock, obviously, because different sorts of stocks are being valued on different sorts of bases. I mean, with, with iSelect specifically, um, I recall before they were penny dreadful they were two three bucks a share and had fallen down I think this is back in 2018 2019 as well they'd fallen to about a dollar and and Vass and I was thinking you know what this is this is fundamentally a company that we think we understand you know they they make a cut they get a commission on on selling insurance and and um and you know power plans and phone plans and whatnot and it seems like the sort of business that would do pretty well in the modern world and so we went to meet, or Vass actually went to meet with the CEO and they had this long conversation about, you know, why the stock fallen from two bucks to one dollar. You know, do we have anything to be concerned about? It seems on the face of things that everything should be okay, but obviously the share price has dropped and, you know, we've read a couple of broker notes suggesting that you, you guys are come a big downgrade. And the CEO, at the, the CEO at the time said, no, no, everything's fine. Those broker notes are just their opinion, and I maintain that we are on track for for guidance. I think that was a Wednesday. It's important that I mention that was a Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Vass came back to the office, and and we had a chat about it, and I think it was Thursday when we were having the conversation. And I said, look, we wouldn't be doing our job without first confirming why the broker, uh, it was one broker specifically has such a, a negative view on it. So let's send him an email. Let's see if he'll have a chat with us on Monday. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll weigh what he says against what management has said. And, and there's been plenty of times where management have come out with a story that makes sense. And the market comes out with a story that makes sense. And they're both at odds with each other. And, you know, our job is to try and work out which one is nonsense and which one is, is accurate. So we sent the email on the Thursday and, um, you know, we worried about it. You see, you know, said, we'll worry about this come Monday. So Monday morning comes along and I get a frantic phone call from Bass who was, who was on the way to, to another meeting. And he goes, Michael, it's 33 cents. I said, Bass, what's 33 cents? So he says, I select just dropped from a dollar five to 33 cents. And the CEO is retired, uh, big downgrade. They overspent on advertising. They didn't quite get the sales they expected. What should we do? And I said, well, let me ask you a couple of basic questions. I said, number one, do we understand why the downgrade happened? Yeah. Number two, does, the, does management and the new team understand why the downgrade happened and are they going to fix it? Yeah. Great. Is their NTA still about 50 cents? Yeah. Great. I said, mate, I'm going to hang up on you and don't be shy. 
if you can buy something, if you can buy something worth 50 cents on their NTA for 33 cents, then get cracking. So our average buy-in price originally um, was about 50 cents. Um, at the time that was great, it, it promptly ran up to about uh, 80 cents and then 90 cents. I think it might've even gotten to a dollar when Compare the Market came onto the registry. And we trimmed um, because you know, we were cognizant of our weightings and you know, we'd, we'd, we'd made a good return. We didn't sell it all, unfortunately, because it started to drift backwards as it became clear that Compare the Market weren't gonna do a quick takeover. Um, the industry also faced a lot of headwinds in terms of regulatory change to how, how they dealt with healthcare and how they dealt with energy and all that sort of stuff. So the business is not perhaps worth what it was, but the share price fell to 20 cents. Um, so at 20 cents, you're buying a business on its fire sale value. Even if you have to pay to sack all of the stuff and wind it up, you're still talking about 35, 40 cents after you pay for redundancy. So we figured if you can buy an asset worth 40 cents with potential upside from the business, then that's a pretty easy decision to make. So again, it, it hasn't necessarily gone our way um, over the last six to 12 months. Um, based on our previous purchase price, but we averaged down when it got low and, you know, hopefully we'll see it much, much higher in the not too distant future. But again, you know, margin of error, margin of safety. If, 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 if you can be sure that this business is worth 40 cents um, in a wind up scenario, then you can be pretty comfortable paying 20 cents. Now, again, Tony, I'll, I'll, I'll accept that that doesn't mean the next day the share price is going to go up and it often doesn't go up. Yeah. Right? And yeah, timing sure. is something that, that, plays a part and is a factor, um, but we try not to get too hung up on, on, on the matter of timing. Not because it's not important, mm -hmm. but because I think it's much harder to measure. You know, we can get pretty comfortable on what a business mm -hmm. is worth, um, but I can't get that same degree of comfort around how people are gonna feel the next morning and whether or not the share price is gonna go up no, or down. Right. Yeah, we're all playing a regression to the mean game. Yeah, I get that. Um, so I'm still kind of unsure of what your process is. Why, why did you pick out iSelect out of the 2000 shares on the ASX? So fair enough. we have a watch list. We have a watch list, which, which currently makes up about 400 stocks. Um, and each reporting season or anytime there's material information, we update our numbers, um, as to what we think those stocks might be worth. And there's a bit of automa there's a bit of automation and there's a bit of manual inputs. Uh, reporting season is quite a busy time in the office because of all the manual inputs. But essentially, any time a stock falls below what we think their intrinsic value is, we get a flag. And that flag doesn't mean buy. That flag means time to get started on doing some of that due diligence. So for iSelect, um, specifically, given that that's the one that you've mentioned, when it fell to a dollar, um, we've got a flag suggesting that on the basis of its previous earnings, that it looks interesting. So we called up management and had a chat and we did some more research in the business and all that sort of stuff and started to, to try and get comfortable with the business. Um, but but if, if you're asking what's the process to get started looking in a company, um, normally it is something off our watch list that will come up as a flag as having fallen below what we think its intrinsic value is. And normally, normally that's for one of a couple of reasons. Normally it's a business that is going through a, a turnaround. Turnarounds are tough, but, but often you can make good money out of turnarounds. Um, an alternative is that the stock has gone through a one-off issue. So often you'll see big, you know, big one-off hits that a company takes it that isn't going to materially impact them for the long term, but the market is very myopic and focused on what's going on now. So it can have a meaningful impact on the share price. And the other sort of business that tends to, to get flagged are companies that are flying under the radar um, for a number of different reasons. So yeah, no, normally, the, no, normally the, the process is we get a flag from our watch list and then we start doing proper due diligence. There are, there are other ways, but that's normally how it comes about. 
Interesting. You 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 said you spoke with management, and then a couple of days later, the guy retired, and there was a, a downgrade issued. So, I mean, I've been through the process of speaking with management, and they're generally salespeople. So, how how much stock do you put on talking to management about their own book? Yeah, look, it's 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 a tricky situation, isn't it? Um, I've mm. I've walked into into meetings before where a manager has essentially talked us out of buying a stock. Um, and then of course, a bit, which was to our benefit because it turns out there was a downgrade coming up. It wasn't explicit, but <laughs> we read between the lines. And of course, there's been plenty of times where management are spruiking their business because that's, that's their job to, to be positive about the business where it turned out to be not entirely true. So I was at a, um, a function not that long ago and I think I might've told that exact story and someone said, well, you know, if, if that's the case, how much can you trust management? And I lifted my fingers about a centimeter apart from each other. And I said about that much, that's about how much mm -hmm. I can trust management. So look, you've got to take it with a grain of salt. You, 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 you've got to try and read people as best you can. Um, but what you really want to find is, is what a manager is saying being backed up with um, third party um, confirmation. You know, and what I mean by that is, you know, one of the earliest stocks we looked at for the fund was, um, was Metcash. And management were telling a wonderful story and the market said, no, nah, we don't buy it. We don't believe it. You can't run. You can't run supermarkets as a franchise model. It just, it doesn't work. So we sat there and, you know, we called management and, and he told the story and everything he said made a ton of sense. But more than that, he said, look, it, it's not that I'm telling you something that's going to happen in the future. I'm telling you, these are processes that we have put in place that are currently working and you will see the results of these processes in the next six to nine months. So I thought that was interesting. You know, they'd implemented a number of processes like price matching. You know, there's a perception that IGA is expensive. So they price match against Woolies and Coles. You know, another thing is a lot of their stores are um, pretty dilapidated. So they, they, they offered to pay half of any refurb that, a, that an owner would do. And lastly, they offered to, re, to, to retrain a lot of the management um, of the stores. Because again, you've got some spectacular IGAs and you've got some unspectacular IGAs. So they were trying to find best practices. So I looked at Vass and I said, you know, our job is to find out as best as we can what the truth is and try and get some sort of, you know, information advantage. The only way we could think of doing it in this circumstance was by actually visiting the stores that had been early adopters of these, of these plans. So again, market had, had, had reasonable concerns and we heard what they were saying and management had a reasonable story and we could hear what they were saying. But again, we wanted to back it up, whatever the case may be, with independent research. So we visited 15 odd stores around Victoria and overwhelmingly the response was price, change, price matching has been revolutionary for our store. It has been a game changer. You know, refurbing the stores have made a massive difference and the retraining has just been a wonderful experience. Um, and and you know, we even had meetings with, with some managers. They took us up to their office. You know, we spoke with managers, we spoke with um, store owners um, and we spoke with you know, checkout, checkout people as well. Um, that was phenomenal, just phenomenal. And that, you know, we even had one guy who he turned his computer screen to us and showed us what the trajectory of his, his store sales had been since he implemented price match and since they'd done the refurb. And we went away and we said, you know what? I understand why the market is skeptical because this has been a dog of a company for a long time and people don't believe anything management has to say. But we can see, we can see evidenced that this thing is working, not just that it's working, but that the entire network of the IGAs nationally are going to be picking this up because the feedback has been so positive. 
So one of the challenges I find with stock marketing, and I, with, with the stock market, I think most people find that, find is that um, oftentimes the only thing you have to judge whether you're right or wrong on is what the share price has done. Um, and if a share price is going backwards, you start to second guess yourself and wonder, ooh, is this a good company or is this a bad company? And, and again, if you've got nothing but share price mm -hmm. to, to judge your things on, then, then you're right to be concerned. But, but if you know more than the market, if you have some sort of information advantage, um, then you can look at IGA or Metcash and you can see the share price go from $1.80 to $1.20 and say, this is not scary, this is an opportunity. So yeah, we looked a bit dumb to our clients when we bought it at $1.80 and it went to $1.60 and we looked dumber still when it went to $1.40 and down to $1.20. But you know, nine months later, when the results started coming out, all of a sudden we were legends. Well, legends in our own lunchbox at least. Um, so yeah, you know, every sort of company we take a slightly different approach to, to how we assess it and how we do our scuttle button, what the case may be. Um, and it's certainly uncomfortable sometimes rocking up to random IGAs, uninvited and trying to introduce ourselves and get the goss on, on what's going on. But again, I think if you put in a little bit more effort or if you're prepared to be a little bit more uncomfortable than the next guy, I think there are massive advantages to be had if, uh, if you can capitalise on that. Yeah, and what you're describing is something which probably can't be done by an individual investor too much anyway which is the, the job that, of a fund that, manager, really. Yeah, look, that may be true, but what shocked us, and again, this was, this, this was the stock that we were looking at right at the beginning of the fund. Um, what shocked us is, again, we spoke to about 15 different, 15 different um, IJ managers or, or, or owners. And at the end, we always asked them, has anyone else come to talk to you? And not a one said yes, not a one. So again, I mean, like I said, my background is a bit different to your traditional fund manager. And so perhaps I don't know what I'm talking about, but I would have thought that if you're looking to buy a business, you'd, you'd want to understand the business as best you can. And I would have thought that the simplest and the starting point would be to turn up to the store and have a look at how things are going. Um, apparently not. Apparently not. I don't know what to tell you. Well, how, well how, I think Cameron might want to ask about one of the stocks you own, but how would you do that for... Uh, one of the bio, I think you've got a biopharmacal, biopharmaceutical stock in your uh, portfolio. How would you test the market, I guess, uh, for a stock like that? Yeah, and I, it's a fair question. Um, it's different. It's different. And, you know, often when I talk about the Metcash idea, I, I then pivot straight because, again, that was one of my early, one of our early time investments. One of the other early investments we made was in ANZ. And um, I say, had I gone into the local Burke Street branch and asked the same sort of questions that I'd asked at Metcash, I probably would have been escorted out of the bank um, under police escort, you know, <laughs> mm. How, how's business been going? How much cash have you got in the till? Those are, not, those are not the sorts of questions you can get away with at every kind of company. Um, with Paradigm, it was actually an interesting one. It was, it, it's an example of an idea coming not from our watch list. Um, you know, had you asked me 10 years ago, had you asked me six years ago, can I imagine myself investing in um, commodity stocks or biopharmaceuticals? I would have laughed at you and said, haha, that's very funny. That's not what value investing. That's not what value mm. investing is, and that's not what value investors do. Um, Paradigm we actually found through some personal experiences. Um, a member of the family actually needed to have a, a knee reconstruction. She had um, some serious osteoarthritis, and she went to see the doctors. and And the traditional the traditional um, treatment is basically knee reconstruction. So she went to the knee reconstruction, and the recovery process was absolutely awful. Awful. I mean, I can't express how awful the recovery process was. Um, and as is often the case, 
if you've got osteoarthritis in one knee, you're probably going to have it in the other knee or the hip as well. And, um, you know, she recovered from the original surgery and, and, and then a couple of, you know, recently went back to, to get assessed for her other knee. And this was Vass's family. And um, I went to the doctor and the doctor said, look, you've got to get a reconstruction again. We've got to, got to you know, we've got to go into the knife. And the family were not surprisingly not keen on that approach because of the experience they'd had before. And Vass, my business partner, not being a shrinking violet, kept pushing and pushing and pushing and saying, look, is there nothing else we can do? And eventually the doctor said, look, I was hesitant to mention this because your father is a doctor and I, I don't want to be accused of, of recommending unproven treatments, but if you're happy to, 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 to go on the special access scheme, there is this treatment that's available um, where you can, you can get a couple of injections and it seems to be having really good results. So we looked into it. We, uh, we got in touch with some brokers. We got in touch with the, the management team, Paul Rennie. I've had many conversations with Paul Rennie. Um, and it seemed like a really, really interesting story. Um, now, the family member went on it and had some great results. But, you know, anecdotally, one set of, one set of results doesn't make statistically significant evidence. Um, but what we discovered the more we looked into it was that there have been some 500 patients treated under this special access scheme. We spoke to brokers who themselves had, had, had participated in, in treatment. We spoke to patients, we spoke to doctors, we spoke to anybody that we could get our hands on that had any sort of connection or relationship with this company. And what we found was that the market tends not to ascribe success or value to this sort of company until at least stage two clinical trials come out. And stage two clinical trials basically means you get a big subset of people, you know, two, three, four, 500 to a thousand people, mm -hmm. you treat them against the placebo and you see what the outcomes were. And normally you're waiting for those results to come before you know whether or not this drug is working. What was different here was because it was a repurposed drug and it had a great track record from a safety perspective, the government actually let the company treat patients who were in dire need, had tried everything else, and and this was like a uh, like like a mercy offering that they could go and they could get on this drug even though it wasn't officially um, approved for for that particular use. And there are 500 patients out there, the data from whom we have access to, the data from whom management had been reporting on an ongoing basis through the through their ASX announcements. But again, it's not the official results, right? The official results only come out when stage two clinical trial results come out. So we sat there and we, we said, look, it seems to us, it seems to us that it works. It's worked for our family. It's worked for everybody that we've spoken to. Um, the doctors we've spoken to have, have sung its praises. I mean, I even had a friend who was a vet and I called him up. I said, look, I heard that this drug has been used in, in the veterinary space for a long, long time. Can you tell me about it? And, you know, how does it tend to work for cats and dogs and horses? And he said, it's been a miracle drug for animals, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to translate into humans. I said, fair enough, but thanks for the feedback. Um, so we said, you know what? I understand why the institutions and the, and the big buyers are waiting for clinical stage two clinical trial numbers to come out because that's the official numbers. But why would the results be significantly different in a clinical trial than in the real world? Because at the end of the day, the clinical trial is trying to find out what's going to happen in the real world. So we had access to that real world data. We said, you know what, this company, it's not especially expensive at the moment. I think it was maybe $200 million, maybe less than $200 million market cap at the time. And they had a few projects on the boil. 
Um, the upside for this business is absolutely astronomical. I mean, the company later came out and said that their addressable market on a per annum basis just out of the United States is about $9 billion. That's billion with a B. And of course, it's a long way to get from where we are to, to, to getting into production and distribution and sales. But, you know, when we sat there and we said, look, we know this drug works. We recognize the market is not yet ascribing value to the fact that the drug works. We understand why. Um, the downside we think is quite limited, um, especially relative to the upside. So again, we, we, we made the assessment and on a, a risk adjusted basis, we decided to take a position. And we were somewhat fortunate that shortly after we discovered it, they were doing a capital raising. So we, we ended up um, essentially cornerstoning a capital raising that I think funded the completion of their stage two clinical trials. So yes, Tony, very different to, to some of the other stocks that, that sit now in our portfolio. But again, we're looking to buy a dollar for 50 cents. Sometimes that's possible because a company's fire sale value is significantly more than the share price. And sometimes that dollar is in future earnings, whether it's close, you know, whether it's this year, next year or the year after, or perhaps two or three years in the future. Yeah, and that's a classic Peter Lynch story, isn't it? Where you come across something in your everyday life and you researched it and then uh, and decided to take an investment in it. Yeah. Correct. I mean, I, I recall not that long ago getting questions about Myers when they were going through some serious issues originally. And um, I said, look, we could look at the numbers, we can make assessments all we like, but when push comes to shove, when I ask my daughter if she's interested in shopping at Maya, the answer is always no. So, you know, sometimes, sometimes the, the average consumer or, or, mm. or patient or, or the average guy on the street can have far better insight than, than all of the analysts in the big banks because, you know, as an analyst, and we suffer from it as well, you know, you end up creating this echo chamber where whatever you, you surround yourself by, pe by people who think in the same way that you think, mm -hmm. and you run the risk of just hearing back what you want to hear back. So you've got to, from time to time, go out and speak to people who are different from you. You've got to, from time to time, go and speak to people who don't necessarily have any financial ac um, acronym, um, acumen, because, you know, there's a lesson to be learned from everybody. And our job is to, to, to learn those lessons and protect our clients' money as best we can. Mm -hmm. So we covered a lot of individual stocks there. One thing that I, I like talking about when I talk to value investors is there's a lot of negative press about value investing at the moment. Uh, how do you feel about that? I mean, I, I kind of continue to find things I can buy which are value investments and do quite well of them. But uh, I, I don't know if it's a naming convention that the, the market has, which is wrong or whether value investors are just shy about standing up and showing their performance, but uh, or whether it's a relative thing that the tech stocks are doing better than the traditional value portfolio. But what's your take on this whole growth versus value debate at the moment? Yeah, Tony, I think on you, I think you touched on a couple of points I, was, <laughs> I could probably make, but I think the three key challenges, I think for me are number one, there's no set definition on what value investing is. Um, you know, different people, be value investing in different ways. And so if there's no definition, then anyone can be a value investor. And if anyone can be a value investor, then it, you know, the term loses, loses, loses all, it loses all value, pardon the pun. Um, I think the other issue or, or the second issue is that, especially if you're talking about institutional money, I think most funds, they might call themselves value investors, but I think they're probably, benchmark funds with a bit of a value twist around, around the edges for, you know, 10, 15, 20% of their. Yeah, they've the gotten market. very big, haven't they? Yeah. And, and, and the challenge with that is, and, and it brings me to the third point, which you also mentioned is that 
you know, people like to compare. People always say, I want to compare apples with apples, you know, oranges with oranges, apples with apples. So, so it's very hard to try and pin down what any individual um, fund manager or, or approach might be and compare it to other like for likes because everybody's going to have their own twist on things. So I think what most people do is most funds are compared against the benchmark. Um, and I think that's a massive disservice um, to the investor and to the fund managers because it means if you're going to be measured against the benchmark, you're motivated to not diverge much from the benchmark. And so again, even if you are qualified as an active fund, I think you'll find that even active funds will have the vast majority of their portfolio exposed to index-like returns. And then around the edges, there'll be 10, 15, 20, 30, maybe even as much as 40% where they add value through whatever their philosophy may be, be it growth, be it value, whatever, whatever the case may be. And I think that's a problem. I think, I think a lot of funds that claim to be value because of that aren't actually or necessarily value. I think the third point, um, which you touched on, sorry, I've said a blank. Uh, Rel <laughs> relative <laughs> performance to growth. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's the one. Um, I, th I think the third point, which, which you mentioned, is that especially when you're talking about value investors, value investors aren't looking to generate market returns. Yeah. You know, you and I, I think we're quite similar. You know, we go out there and we say we're happy to earn a 15 or 20% per annum return no matter what the markets are doing. You know, if you came to me and said, Michael, would you be happy with a 15% return every year for the next 15 years, excluding some sort of, you know, crazy hyperinflation environment? I would say yes, I would say yes. But markets don't move like that. Markets move on hype, you know, markets are both manic and depressive. And so what you will find, I believe, is that when markets are being driven by hype, as I think we're seeing right now, tech stocks and buy now, pay later stocks and very, very high multiples. Um, I think you'll find, and traditionally I think it's true, that value investors are gonna underperform because value investors are finding good quality companies trading the discount to their, to, their, to their intrinsic value. And they're not gonna go exploding up by 400% like Afterpay is, or 500%. They're gonna go up consistently on average over the medium term, 15, 20%. So what you'll find is in runaway markets like what we're experiencing at the moment, value investors are going to underperform, but I think that's by design. And I think what you'll find in flatter markets or in down markets, value investors will outperform again by design because we're just looking for good quality businesses that given time will generate a, a, uh, a sufficient return on capital. Yeah, and, and it's it, it does strike me that we're in a bit of a frothy time at the moment. I mean, the, it's the 19th of August now and the S&P is back to its all time high today, even though America's still in the grips of the COVID pandemic. And uh, Tesla's just uh, split its shares. And I, I think it was either Google or Amazon were considering it, doing it as well. And, uh, uh, you know, this, the shares are split and then they go up 20% just because they split. So there's not much logic going on in the market at the moment. No, true. I, I was having a chat with the team the other day and, and we were talking about what's been driving the market. And no one can know. I mean, no one can actually know. But, um, you know, one of a couple of things we talked about, obviously, low interest rates has an impact, um, you know, the risk of being out of the market and being a benchmark hugger, obviously, um, plays a part as well. But one of the one of the things that I brought up and we were sort of toying with was the, the, the concept of share investing for entertainment. Yeah. You know, I, I pointed out Damn. that, you know, until recently, there was no sports on TV. You know, you couldn't really leave your house except for to go to work if you were lucky enough to have a job that you were allowed to go to. 
And so people are finding themselves sitting at home all of a sudden with access to their, self, to, to their super funds, don't forget. So, you know, all of a sudden you've got access to an extra 20K um, looking for something to do and, and the cash burning a hole in their pocket. And I think, I think, I think what you might have found, and again, I don't have any, any real evidence to, 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 to line this up with, but I think what you might have found, and I think you see it in some of the stories you've heard out of um, like Robin Hood investors in the States and similar stories locally, is that a lot of money has been poured into these exciting growth stocks. And perhaps, perhaps a lot of the froth that we're seeing is being driven from the ground level by uh, very retail money. Now, I don't know if that's true for sure, um, but yeah, it's, it's been a very interesting time. Yeah, no, I agree. I think you're right. I think you've, I've seen some graphs of uh, where the institutional money is and where it's been and where retail money is and where it's been, and uh, they're very different. Mm. Yeah. Well, th- that may be true, um, but I think what you'll probably find is that if retail money starts pushing a stock, then eventually the institutional, the insto money might actually come in and support. Yeah, as they well. have to once they get into the different indexes, don't they? Yeah, that's an issue. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah. The, correct. I mean, the classic one is is Afterpay. Mm. I mean, this is a company with a twenty billion dollar market cap with zero dollars of earnings so far, um, and it's down the ASX top twenty. So, you know, maybe it belongs there. Maybe they're going to replace credit cards, but. Um, the people who are investing in it are braver than I am. I, saw a, I wish them the best of luck, yeah, by the way, no, but braver than me. I saw a great video uh, recently of Buffett years and years ago talking about uh, the auto industry and how at the turn of the last century there were 2,000 automakers, but uh, you wouldn't know which three to pick that would become Ford, GM and Chrysler, and yet they're the only three that's, that's, that survive. So his thesis was you're better off shorting buggy, buggy whips rather than trying to pick the winners. And, <laughs> And I think the same thing's going on with the uh, credit card market at the moment. Like Afterpay may be the, the one that survives for another 100 years or it might be something else. You just don't know, really. You're 100% correct. But if I could take that one step further, even if you picked Ford, GM and, uh, and General Merck, Chrysler, sorry, Ford, Chrysler. GM and, and Chrysler, you still would have lost money. <laughs> they still went bankrupt during the, during the GFC, oh, right? Yeah. So, so even, even if cars are the way of the future, even if pay now, sorry, buy now, pay later is the way of the future, there's no guarantee that's going to translate into profitability. Mm. I mean, you see, you, you see it classically in the airline industry. I mean, the airline industry has been revolutionary, has taken over the world, has changed the way we live, and uh, no one's making a red cent out of it. Mm, same with television. Yeah, took over the world by storm from the 50s onwards, but they're not making any money now. That's it. All right, Cam, I've I've exhausted my list of questions. Did you have any to uh, throw in? Well, look, I'm conscious of time, Michael. We've taken up a lot of your time. Do you have time to answer one more question? I've I've sent the kids out of the house, so it's quiet time. (laughs) They're not coming back for another 40 minutes. So as long as we can knock off what we need before 40 minutes, you should be able to avoid the circus that is my home. Oh, that's, I appreciate that. Well, no, I read, um, when I was reading some of your past interviews, uh, I read something, I think it was recently where you said you might need to soft close the fund at some point, if it gets up around 400 million, uh, the quote in the interview said from you was, there's no value for any parties to simply grow the fund for the sake of getting larger. If we can't generate the returns we want, there's no value in raising more capital. And one of the this question's come up a lot on our podcast over the last year or so when we look at funds that don't seem to be performing well vis-a-vis uh, the, the index or compared to Tony's performance. And we, we have talked about the additional complexities that must be involved when you're trading it with large sums of money. 
I know that even in our show, you know, Tony will often say when a stock, when we analyze a stock that gets a good score, good QAV score in our terminology, but Tony will say, but it's um, trading volumes are too small for him to invest in with the sorts of money that he's splashing about. Uh, but for some of our smaller investors, uh, it, 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 it might be a good um, stock to look at. I imagine in the sort of realm that you're playing in, there are additional complexities. Can you talk us through so, how that uh, manifests, the complexities of dealing with large sums of money? Yeah, look, I mean, sure, when we first started with our first million dollars on, on month one, it's much easier to allocate $1 million than it is 10 or 20 or 50 or 100. No, no question. Um, and as we've gone, we've seen ourselves paying more and more attention to, to liquidity in the markets. Um, liquidity is a key consideration, but we try and make it secondary to value. So if we find a stock that we think, like an iSelect or, or like a National Tires, yeah, it could be very hard to get set um, by buying directly in the market, but oftentimes you can call around to your broker networks and you can find lines of stocks um, to, 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 to fill up what you're after. But 100% you're right. I mean, I think Warren Buffett said recently that he was certain that if someone gave him a million dollars today, he could, I think, make a 50% return over the next few years on, on that million dollars because managing a million dollars is very easy relative to man managing billions of dollars. Um, I don't know that I can add a tremendous amount more to, to your point, except for to say that, look, you know, we went down the path of a zero fixed management fee because we want to align our interests with our, with our investors. And one of those manifestations is that we need to make sure that we keep generating good returns. And, and that means managing our capacity. So, you know, we're fairly confident that we can keep doing the sorts of things that we're doing um, with a mandate up to about four or $500 billion. But from that point on, it would get quite complicated and perhaps quite difficult to the point that we can't generate those returns that we're after. And if we're not generating returns, then we're not getting paid. And if we're not getting paid, what's the point? So again, we're looking after our own, in, uh, our own interests in looking after our investors' interests. But specifically, like uh, to help our audience understand, what are the complexities when you're dealing with that amount of money that make it difficult to achieve the sorts of returns you want? Is it because that when you get involved in the stock, it's too hard to take up a position in it without losing the um, margin of safety? Uh, what are the complexities specifically? Yeah, so, so that's for sure true. Again, I mean, if I, if I compared our fund portfolio to what I imagine my portfolio would look like if I still ran a private portfolio, I'd be quite happy having all of my, you know, my, all of my positions in, in all of my money in four positions or, or, or thereabouts. With the fund, it doesn't make sense. You can't manage a portfolio um, of any size or any reasonable size um, so tightly. So that's why, you know, we're aiming for around about the 10, 12 sort of positions over the long term. Look, it is a challenge um, to not push up markets. And so sometimes we'll do it quietly and sometimes we'll do it slowly and sometimes we'll find a stockbroker that can find a line for us if it's a smaller type company. But, but as I was saying, you know, certainly as we grow, um, we are moving up the market cap ladder. So whereas when we started, we might have been happy investing in a company where we would require a liquidity event in the market to get out of, we're happy to invest in, you know, a 20, 50, $100 million market cap. Right now, we wouldn't be because, you know, if we're taking a five to 10% position in any given stock, well, you know, if you buy a five, uh, you know, a $5 million position in a company that's got a $20 million market cap, 
well then for better or for worse, you're stuck with that company until either it gets taken over or something fundamental happens and it changes. So, so certainly if we're looking for, or if we're looking at a stock that requires a market exit, we're looking much higher on the, on the, market, cap, um, on the market cap ladder. But if we imagine that there is a, a, a capital event or some sort of liquidity event that we can create or, or, or motivate or push for, then like I said, we'll look for a, a broker who can buy a stock in a line um, and get set that way and then motivate management to, to realize value. It does mean that there are a lot of stocks like Tony mentioned, where by itself it looks like a great idea, but we just can't get set without moving the, without moving the market. And so we say, fine, move on to the next idea. And there's, there's always an next mm. idea. I mean, you know, mm. what, one of the lessons of investing, and I, I think you'll both agree with me, is, is the value of patience. Yeah. yeah. I remember when I started, and, you know, a good idea came across my desk. and I thought, oh, my gosh, this is the greatest idea I've ever seen. And it's the greatest idea I'm ever going to see. I better, you know, chase after it. And that's, that's, that's never the case. You know, there's always another idea. If you, you know, if you wait, if you're patient, if your eyes are open, you'll always find another idea. So yeah, we say no to a lot more ideas than we say yes to, and that's the way it should be. Um, but mm. when we find an idea that fits the mandate and we're able to, to get enough stock in, we buy with conviction. You know, we'll buy a five or 10% position in, in, in any given stock. I'm interested, mm. uh, you're saying if you ran the, the, the portfolio yourself, you'd have maybe four shares in it and you've got 10 or 12 in your in your fund, uh, but you've got more ideas than that. So, so why, why do you, why do you find that four shares is enough or uh, as opposed to investing in all your ideas? Well, there are lots of ideas, but there are, there are degrees of ideas, right? You've got your best idea, you've got your second best idea and so on and so forth. The risk with running a hyper concentrated portfolio is you get a lot of volatility. Now for me, being the guy who's done the research into the stocks, I'm comfortable with the volatility because I don't view volatility as risk. I risk, sorry, I, I view risk as the absolute loss of capital. So, you know, for me, I'm happy to buy my top three ideas, you know, get, you know, get, get a teeny bit of diversification and don't worry about the volatility. Whereas if I'm running a, whereas if I'm running other people's money and we are a liquid fund, so we, we do have inflows and outflows every single month. I can't run a portfolio in the same way I'd run it for myself because I need to be aware of the volatility. Again, I'm not scared of volatility. And I think, I think my investors understand that we have probably a little bit more volatility than your standard bench hugging, hugging um, uh, fund might have. But I think the balance of around about 10, 12 positions is about right. Is there, is there any maths behind that or is it just experience that you found you can, you can take cash off the table and pay out people who are redeeming and add to that position easy with that kind of size? I mean, the, yeah, look, there, there is some maths, and I don't have it in front of me, but you know, I, I've read many a time that if you do it right, you can have a prop, whatever properly diversified means, but you can have a properly diversified portfolio with 10 to 12 stocks. I, I have read that in several places. Um, our view has always been, we're not concerned about volatility, we're just concerned about liquidity from a fund perspective. And so we've always sought to have 60 to 70% of our money in businesses or in cash um, where if we wanted to exit, we could exit within a couple of days without um, meaningfully impacting the stock market, we, we, the, the stock prices. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have big holdings of cash almost all the time relative to, I think, the industry. You know, I think 10, at the moment we've got about 12 or 15% cash. I think, you know, the lowest we've ever gotten is 5 or 10%. I think it's always a good idea to have some capital on hand for just in case. I think probably most big funds have a couple of percent. Um, in cash, um, which is fine. It works for them. 
look at our mandate is absolute returns. So my clients don't mind if I hold more cash as long as I'm generating good returns for them. But I'm not concerned about volatility. I have some concerns about liquidity. And so to that end, we try and keep the, the, the portfolio 60 to 70 I, I find that I'm, I'm like you I'm not concerned at all about volatility because it's not risk but I, I, I do struggle sometimes in that uh, if I only invested in my top three ideas it was number four that was the best turned out to be the best idea so you know I, I do spread between <laughs> 10 and 20 for that reason right, Tony that's on yeah, you yeah. that's right yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. hazy process <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the great thing about investing in general is you don't have to have a view on everything and you don't have to invest everywhere. And so what if your fourth best idea didn't pan out? Like, it doesn't matter what you missed out on, it matters what you've actually invested in. So yeah, you could have gotten better returns had you invested in number four, Tony, but you know, part of the challenge, part of the emotional challenge of investing is being happy and satisfied and comfortable with, with what you have invested in and being happy, comfortable and satisfied with the stocks that you said no one. No, definitely. You're right. Oh, well, Michael, just one last thing then. Uh, you, you mentioned, Tony was telling me on our show earlier this week, one, one of our listeners asked a question about what his worst years were. And I think we went back to the GFC and he had a couple of bad years there. But he said that one of the things that uh, he learned through that process was how to put a stop loss in place. So, you know, we have a, part of our process now is uh, looking at the three point trend line of a stock. And once it breaches its uh, sell line, we will sell the stock regardless of whether we think it's a good stock or a bad stock rather than a classic value investing mindset of, you know, digging in and just saying, no, you know, we're going to hold it forever until it uh, uh, regresses to the mean, I guess. Um, I'm interested if you have a similar sort of stop loss mentality or process in the fund or do you, do you just dig in for the long term? I'm hesitant to say we dig in for the long term because we're not digging in for the long term. We, we buy a stock with a view of what we think it's worth um, and we buy it at a material discount to what we think that valuation is. And if the share price goes down, we see that as an opportunity, um, not a risk. Again, I think, I think the concept of stop losses is fine um, if you haven't got an information advantage, if you're not any more informed than the other guy out there, then you're hundred percent correct. And as I mentioned before, the only thing you really have to measure whether you're right or wrong is what the share price is doing. So if the share price is going down, then perhaps you made a mistake. And I, I don't want to come across as being, um, you know, a know-it-all because for sure we get things wrong from time to time, more, more times than I care to admit. Right. But, but, at the end of the day, there are things that we are in control of and there are things that we're not in control of. And I think we are in control of finding out everything we possibly can that we then put to good use into coming up with an intrinsic value for, for, for a stock, for a company, for a business. And if that business is trading at a discount, we're happy to buy it. Um, if it goes down, we're happy to buy more. And that tends to be the way we go about things. I mean, my view is that on any given day, there's as much chance that a share price, well, I'll take that back. On any given day, if I'm right, there's more chance that a share price is going up than it's going down. So just because the share price has gone down a couple of days in a row doesn't change the odds of the next day in my view. Um, and if the stock is cheaper than it was yesterday, then to me, that seems like an opportunity to buy my favorite apples in the store at a 50% discount to the previous day. You know, stocks, stocks are just part ownership in a business. It's, a, it's an actual thing that you can touch and feel. 
really, if you wanted to go, you could touch and feel some aspect of every business. And I think people lose sight of that and it becomes more of a theoretical flip on the screen. But, you know, if I asked you, Cameron, if your favorite nashi apples um, normally cost a dollar a kilo and they went down to 90 cents the next week, would you be more or less likely to buy them than you were the week before? No, I'd say I, I only eat pink lady apples, but um, yeah. Fine, pink, pink lady apples. <laughs> yeah, no. You're gonna buy, you're gonna buy. So what about, what about 70 cents? If they go down to 70 cents a kilo, more or less likely to buy uh, them? Yes, more. How do you know there's not something wrong with pink lady apples? <laughs> well, the, yes. And, and that, that's the thing, right? That's the thing. With, with, with actual you know, food stuff and, and widgets, we can touch and we can feel it. And so it becomes less theoretical and it becomes more mm. practical. I like mm. those pink ladies. I love them at a dollar. I love them even more at 50 cents. Whereas with stocks, it's more theoretical. Well, the difference being is I'm going to eat the apples. I'm not going to sit on them and wait to resell them when uh, the price gets back up above what I paid for them. Uh, so and now uh, we're talking about speculation relative to investing. Well, no, I, I will I'll throw Tony's argument as I understand it, which is obviously um, probably only about 10% of what the, Tony's understanding is about it. But the way he's explained it to me is uh, whilst he might believe in the inherent value and the intrinsic value that he's calculated for that stock, it doesn't really matter if the rest of the market has decided they're going to dump it um, because he can, uh, he doesn't know how far it's going to drop and he could take that uh, capital and put it somewhere where it's, uh, where the market sentiments not driving it down consistently. And we're not talking about a couple of days here or there. I mean, I'm talking about a, a concerted period of time where the stock drops below a trend line. Uh, that he can um, take that capital and put it somewhere where it's going to be performing better for the next six months or the 12 months or two years, uh, rather than just be waiting for the market to get over its heebie-jeebies on that stock and it start to tick back up again. Because if it falls by 20% or 30% or 50%, when it starts to tick back up again, you can get back in and buy it then and ride more of the upside rather than, you know, sticking with it on the way down. How did I go there, Tony? Was that close? That's good. Yeah. Yep. No, it's perfect. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, and I'm thinking more about GFC type events, even the COVID event that, uh, you know, I mean, COVID turned out to be short term, but the GFC, you could ride stocks down to half their value or more and wait two or three years, maybe even five years for it to recover. So that's that's one of the things I learned was to look at the the sentiment on the stock as one of my inputs as a go and no go. I take your point, Michael, about pink lady apples, but we're buying the buying the apples to eat them, not to we're not the grocery store owner who's saying, Great, pink lady apples are cheaper, I'm gonna buy twice as many pink lady okay, apples. So so, so my view my view is that they're stock. not so dissimilar. I eat the returns I get from the companies that I've invested in. <laughs> Yeah, but I can't. But I can't eat more pink lady apples just because they're cheap. <laughs> I'm getting lost in our analogy now. But yeah, okay, good point. Yeah. So, but but look, I I, I I agree with you, Michael. I'm not trying to debate you on that. We both have different ways of doing. Look, things. if 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 I could turn around tomorrow and say I've become an expert person in time of the markets, then then fine. Maybe maybe I could come mm. on board with 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 the philosophy you're you're suggesting here, and I understand what you're saying. I would just suggest that at least with my personal experience, in practical terms, it doesn't always work out quite that cleanly. 
it, nothing's ever clean in the market. So I understand what you're saying. Maybe just let me refine the question a, a bit more. When do you get out of a position? Is it when it reaches the IV you've calculated for it or if it's still going up, do you hold on? And, and if, it, if so, when yeah, do you There, there are normally three reasons. Um, number one, if the story changes, we get out. Um, it hasn't happened often, but we have on occasion had to dump a stock when a story changed. Um, otherwise, the two more common situations are when there's an alternative use for that capital that is materially better um, or when a stock gets to what we think its intrinsic value is. Um, you know, we won't necessarily dump it all straight away. We could chip it out or whatnot. You know, we're, hap we're happy if the market's excited about a stock to, to chip it out and over, you know, a couple of weeks, get out of position. But typically when it gets to what we think it's worth, we'll exit. And that's cost us in the past. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. We've sold early plenty of yeah. times. Mm. Um, that's one of the things that I, that I struggle with is like- Selling uh, is much harder uh, than buying. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, Mark, uh, the market will, will be like a pendulum and it'll be- uh, under, there's the undervalue swing when we buy and then there's definitely a swing to overvaluation as everyone jumps on board and it goes through various index changes and things like that and the instos jump in so yeah it can be i found in the past it can be a problem getting out too soon which is getting back to what cameron was saying i'll wait until the sentiment changes before i get out regardless of it may be twice what i think it's worth in terms of its yeah, i remember not that long ago we bought a stock that we thought was cheap um good value and about two or three days later, um, we got a Google alert that there was potential for a class action on it. And so we got in touch with some of our, our legal experts and we had a chat with them and we were trying to find out if the case had merit and we were informed that yes, this case has merit. So uh, we turned around within four days of buying it and we got out of the stock because it hadn't hit the market at that point. Um, Another example of our timing being awful was three days later, it got taken over for a massive premium. So perhaps sometimes Tony and, and Cameron, you can be overly informed. <laughs> yeah, the market can be messy. All yeah. right. Michael, Good. well, uh, really appreciate you coming on and chatting. That was a very refreshing chat and um, I love your style and what you're doing and congratulations on the, Success, may it continue. Amen. Thank you, Cameron. I appreciate your time, guys. Yeah, good. Good stuff. And, and where can our, if our listeners want to invest with you, where, where do they go? The best way is to find us through our website, csvf.com.au. Um, just shoot us an email and we'll come back to you with whatever you're after. Good. And uh, hopefully when Melbourne gets back to the real world, we can catch up sometime for a coffee or a, a bite. That would be a treat, although I'm feeling like I never will be able to go out ever again. Things <laughs> are currently standing. <laughs> Go and, go and invest in another bio stock that can fix create COVID. a magazine for yeah. COVID. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Enjoy the Michael. rest of your day. Stay safe, Michael. Thanks, fellas. Thanks so much. Yeah. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Well, there you go, Michael Goldberg, Collins Street Value Fund. I hope you enjoyed that as much as Tony and I did. If you're looking for a fund that uh, has a value based philosophy, go check it out at their website, uh, ccsvf.com.au. And if you're brand new and listening to this for the first time, please remember this is just a podcast. Nobody uh, is a financial advisor on this. So uh, don't take anything you heard on this as financial advice that is right for you. If you need financial advice, please go see a financial advisor. But if you're looking for someone to uh, help and you're a, you're a wholesale level investor, check out CSVF 
And if you're looking to learn how value investors invest so you can understand it better for yourself or do it for yourself, check out our premium podcast. Get uh, on the two-week free trial at qavpodcast.com.au. You get to go over all of our videos and listen to all of our premium episodes where Tony explains his methodology in great detail. Get to look at his uh, stock scoring checklist and get to read our getting started guide on how that works and get invited to our VIP events. We've just had some fun dinners around the country during lockdown, uh, well, before lockdown, I guess, in Sydney and then uh, recently in Queensland, where we don't have lockdown. Yay! Yet. Um, you get to ask Tony questions, which we'll answer on upcoming shows, all this kind of good stuff. Anyway, check it out, qavpodcast.com.au. Otherwise, have a great week, stay safe, and good luck with your investing.